Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we'll be speaking with Mario Latondres. He's a longtime researcher and speaker on the Shroud, and today we'll be talking about some of the new research he's been doing on the Shroud. So Mario is a computer scientist and Shroud researcher with a PhD in computer sciences from the University of Montreal, and he works in private research in a private research center doing artificial intelligence. And for more information, visit syndenology.org, syndenology.org, and we'll also give uh, some other addresses as we get to the end here. Mario, uh, welcome and thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Guy. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and talk about the Shroud uh, and the research that goes on and uh, that um, I think is, uh, is always very interesting to uh, exchange ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And you've been doing some really, really cool stuff, and I'm excited to hear about the latest. But uh, before we get into that, uh, tell us your backstory on the Shroud of Turin. How did you get involved in studying and researching the Shroud? Well, I started in 97, uh, so it's about 25 years ago. Uh, and uh, when I first look at the shroud and realize how incredible the image was, uh, I thought, you know, there's there's a major study you can do there uh, in terms of how the image form, um, uh, you know, what, what are the arguments against the authenticity and what are the arguments for the authenticity? So the question of authenticity was uh, at the center of what I did. And um, so that, that was a, a surprising, uh, you know, surprise to me to find out uh, so many arguments against and so many arguments for. And so, and, and then I started there, I started with the image formation and uh, started to study that. And, but more, more recently, well, recently the last seven years, uh, much more interested in the history of the Shroud because I realized that reading a lot of the original documents in French, uh, I realized that there were several history hypotheses out there that I think we could show was definitely wrong. And uh, some others that I thought was much more probable. probable. Uh, so that's why I got into that to you know, get into the documents, actually uh, the original ones and uh, study them more deeply. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you're so right. And, and there are so many different opinions and on, on so many different aspects of the shroud and certainly the history of what we're, and the history that we'll be talking about in particular is when it was in France, when it got there and then how it uh, made its way uh, through France and what have you. But uh, before we get to that, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, what's, uh, talk, what's called, uh, which I think is false, is the radiocarbon dating that was done on the Shroud in 1988. Yeah, so one of the major results that goes against the identity of the Shroud is the radiocarbon dating of 88. Um, and uh, everybody who has studied the Shroud knows about this result. Um, and lots of hypothesis has been put out there why it could have been wrong. Uh, because from the other information we have, we have, we had the impression it was authentic. Uh, so the medieval date definitely was a, a big surprise. 
Um, and then, you know, we've heard hypotheses like uh, several one of them. And one of them is, for example, the reweave that could have happened in one of the corner. And, uh, and, and, and you know, Aria Rogers published on that subject. Um, but I think that the evidence for that, unfortunately, is very, very weak. Uh, I did publish a paper, a comment on that, and the uh, the same journal that Ray Rogers published, and essentially the results that were presented by Ray Rogers were, uh, I would say, too um, too undefined, too imprecise, and I don't think we could actually come up with a conclusion there. Um, and also other other uh, historical facts does not go in that direction. So I think there's no relief there. Um, but I think that the major issue is that if you are coherent, you have to think that when the image was formed, and if you assume it is authentic, uh, then uh, something may have happened to the clot that is a bit outside our knowledge. And one of one of the data point that we have, which is very important, is the what we call the the key square uh, result of the data that were uh, the resocarbon dating, which is very high, which is over six, uh, which is three times uh, some of the result that we have from the control. So I think that the the answer is there potentially is that if we were redoing a second resocarbon dating with several samples in different locations, what is probably going to happen is going to see a lot of different ages and maybe some of them in the future which would show that, hey, something happened to that cloth. And that's the direction we should go. We should do a secondary azucarbon dating with several samples and different location. And then we can actually understand better how come we got a, a key square that was so high uh, from 88. Yeah, exactly. And it's uh, kind of fascinating. Uh, I'm in statistics and I know you are uh, with the uh, artificial intelligence and and it's interesting to see how the statistics on the measurements that were done uh, from the three different labs in 1988 then was incorrect. I personally, I think there, I think that the, and what I think is false is we shouldn't call it radiocarbon dating. We should call it the radiocarbon ratio measurement of carbon 14 to carbon 12 in the sample was probably done correctly, but then it wasn't for whatever reason wasn't properly applied for a whole bunch of different reasons. And because uh, I don't think the, the, the labs would necessarily fake it or try and fraudulently put out the wrong numbers. But what, what, what they were able to do is then give a, uh, you know, what that ratio was, but then to be able to translate that into a date is where things went wrong. And, uh, and so I agree with you that there's definitely some interesting challenges there, and certainly the statistics behind it are also kind of interesting as well to see uh, what, what was really going on with the various samples and the various uh, measurements that they did. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, I, I was in Turin uh, a week ago, uh, and I did talk to uh, two people over there are part of the commission of the conservation of the, the shroud. And one of them raised indeed the fact that we have right now the possibility of doing a second radiocarbon dating without actually going to the shroud and, and extracting these samples. It will be possible. And so the idea is not completely dead over there. Although as usual, the answer from the authority of Turin is to say we need uh, the Pope to uh, accept mm. uh, 
such a second rise of carbon dating. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, definitely uh, hoping that that will take place. Uh, and, uh, and there's certainly, you know, a handful of folks that are pushing for it. Well, actually, probably a lot of folks that are pushing for it to be able to be done, uh, you know, and one of the challenges is, of course, that the, the dating itself typically is, is destructive. And so uh, being able to do it is uh, in, a, in a way that wouldn't be destructive or to use pieces that were already removed from the shroud, it uh, definitely makes a lot of sense. And, and it looks like that might be very possible. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Now, one of the other things that's fascinating with the shroud is the 3D image uh, itself. And you, uh, I know you've had some interesting thoughts about that. And uh, why don't you tell us about what your thoughts are there? Yeah, this is, this is one of the subjects that I find also fascinating, but also sometimes misunderstood, I think. Uh, and so we hear many things about the 3D information uh, from some researcher. And, and one of the things that is often mentioned is that people say the image of the shroud is a negative image, which I think is a little bit inexact here. And essentially it's a 3D information encoded image, which indeed when you look at the negative uh, image of the shroud is you have a, a better vision of it. You have a, a more, uh, you know, the human eyes have a better facility to uh, perceive the 3D information when we look at the negative image of the, of the shroud. But clearly the shroud is not a negative photography. And uh, I mentioned that because even some researcher uh, that were against the shroud started to argue that it cannot be a negative image and started to have a long discussion about that. And so Macron, for example, in his book went over several pages trying to to, to, to prove that it was not a negative image. And indeed he was right because uh, in some places you don't have a negative impression. It's a 3D information we have there. Um, and this 3D information, some, some may have misunderstood what it means is that you have to take into account the fact that the cloth that was uh, over the body when the image was formed was not flattened. That's for sure. We can prove that. Some people say the shroud was flattened and then the image was formed. No, there's no way this can happen. And I produced a paper disproving that in 2005. Um, and it's simple calculation, but it's it shows it clearly it could not have happened. So it was not flattened, but it was when the when the cloth uh, to have produced such an image, when the cloth was put over the, the corpse or the body, it, it has to be put in a way that was almost flat, I would call it, very gently over the body. Um, and and then what we have recorded now is the 3D information of the distance between the cloth that actually is not completely flat and uh, the body. And so that means it's not completely 3D if you flatten the image. Um, and so this information is there, uh, but uh, it's actually a very rare type of image from the Middle Ages. So of course, today it's easy to produce a 3D information using photography because you can, you know, you can play with some trick and, and do it. So you can produce an image uh, with 3D information today uh, with no problem. And some painting you can create you that with even drawing. But coming from the uh, medieval ages, an such such image is very rare. I would say it's unique, completely unique. Right. 
Right. And, uh, you know, and I was looking at your paper and, uh, and I want to go through that one more time because uh, to your point, um, you know, the three, the, the black and white image really shows, I think the, where you can see the 3d nature of the image significantly better than the, the positive image. And what I saw in your paper is that how the, the cloth would be touching the nose, certainly, and then touching maybe the cheeks. And so then there's, uh, you know, how that encoded the three dimensionality of the image is uh, kind of needs to be accounted for. And I thought, you know, a lot of the things that you had in your paper made a lot of sense there. Yeah, you're right. So the uh, the the, uh, the fact that it was not flat has to be accounted for to make sense of the 3D information. Like uh, I would say, for example, the the hair uh, on the side of the the face, um, the cloth was much closer to the hair than what we would expect if it was flattened. So, and indeed, uh, the hair appears to be close or appear to be straight, uh, but that can be accounted for by the fact that uh, the cloth is actually going down on each mm. side of the face. Uh, that's why it gives us the impression that, uh, like uh, some some uh, researchers said, well, when the image was formed and Christ was standing, um, well, uh, you, you know, you, you can account of this, this, what we see that way is that the cloth is actually going down on each side of the face uh, of uh, the men of the shroud. Yeah, well, and actually, uh, um, and sorry, <laughs> But uh, Caesar Barta put out a really good book very recently here in the last couple of months on the on the sedarium. And what his theory is, is that when the face cloth was put over the face, that the blood and the sweat in the hair solidified the hair. And that's then what makes it kind of appear that it's very, very vertical on the cheeks as opposed to having fallen back. And, um, and it'd be interesting to, uh, you know, to, when you think about that, then it, it does kind of make sense that when the man of the shroud is laying on his back, normally, if his hair was not filled with blood, that it would, you would expect it to fall back. But the fact that, or the theory that it may have solidified due to the face cloth means that it was actually, you know, hanging straight down from his cheeks, even though he was, uh, you know, on his back. So kind of an kind of an interesting set of circumstances there that that seem to all be coming together in terms of how that all all uh, comes together. Yeah, indeed. So you're right. The, the the hair was probably full of you know fluid. I mean, including blood and uh, and sweat, probably a lot. And so indeed, then you have hair that is not what we would expect in general. It's just that the hair was uh, in in a state of you know stiffness. And, uh, and also, I just mentioned very quickly that some people say, well, when we look at the picture of the shroud, we don't see the butts being flattened. And there's also probably an explanation, simple explanation is that when the body uh, was uh, in, a, in a fixed uh, 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 state, um, uh, well, we have to remember that the foot on the, on the cross of Jesus Christ was probably a little bit lower than even the butt. So that, that means... Uh, when you when you put the body on uh, the on a solid surface, then the feet was probably holding the body up a little bit, and so that's why the the, the butts don't don't go flattened on on the uh, on the ground. Mm. 
Yeah, and exactly. And I've been, uh, and you know, I'm, I've been doing a lot of reading and one of the things there too is how much rigor mortis was still in the body or was still developing in the body based on, you know, the, the point at when he died versus when he was actually laid down and, and absolutely, because uh, his knees are also bent and his head seems to also be pointed forward, which means that it had, there had to have been rigor mortis in a lot of the large muscles in any case uh, throughout the body. Yeah, yeah, that's probably the case, yes. And so yeah. all these facts have to be taken into account. They cannot be put aside as, as impossible. And so this is possible. And, uh, and so uh, that these is a combination of, uh, you know, when you maintain coherency of, with what you're dealing with, I mean, you're dealing with uh, uh, Christ that was crucified and a rigor martis probably set up, then it, it all goes together. It, it, it kind of works and it's being coherent with what we see. Yeah, and then to your uh, point as to whether a medieval forger or medieval painter or image creator, whatever that method was, whether he was would have been able to know all of those medical things about what may have happened to the body and the blood and the liquid and the uh, and the rigor mortis and and everything and even even the understanding of how uh, how an individual would have been crucified. Um, you know, was it would have to have been known by him, and and so it's there's so many different little pieces that that person would have had to have known in order to be able to get the the image uh, to get a man-made image in the middle in the Middle Ages uh, to replicate what's seen in the shroud. Yeah, that's that's the main yeah that's the main I would say thesis that uh, that that put the shroud at a very high level. Uh, of, of knowledge that to us appears uh, highly improbable uh, because obviously we don't know any such other image. And so it seems to be coming out of the blue completely. Um, so the shroud uh, image uh, is completely unknown on other such cloth anywhere. And lots of historians that think that it's the shroud is inauthentic try to find other example, but failed. And actually it's good to have these people searching for other cases. And then, you know, they they really think it's, it's not authentic and they're trying very hard to show other examples, but no, you cannot. And so far nobody has found any other examples, uh, including of course, such things as the Shroud of Besançon, for example. Mm. Uh, it didn't have the image, you know, it did have an image, but it didn't have an image as complex as the Shroud of Turin. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, uh, and we can talk about that in a little bit. But one of the things that I think is fascinating is so the radiocarbon dating uh, that was done by the three labs in 1988, came up with a date range of 1260 to 1390. Now, uh, that is happens to be and I don't know if that was coincidence or just luck or whatever. But that's also when the first historical references were made really to to the Shroud of Tur what's known in today, at least in the US as the Shroud of Turin. But what you've been studying is the history of the Shroud and even going back further from the first, uh, uh, um, maybe not the first, but the current uh, uh, exhibitions that took place in Lyre, France, and then moving back and building a history that goes all the way back to Constantinople. And uh, so tell us a little bit about that. Yes, this is actually a very fascinating subject because I think 
first of all, there's still a lot of research we can do there. And there are still documents that were not uncovered that we have not yet studied. Um, it's being thought, I think, by some, even historian, professional historian, that we went through all the paper, we went through all the manuscripts, and we don't find anything, and we will never find anything. Um, but uh, actually, it's much more complex than that. And I was recently in France um, and searching archives um, for for new documents. Uh, it's it's rarely going to you're going you're not going to find a document that will tell you you know. Uh, Black on white, you know, me, Geoffroy de Charny, I got the shroud on that place on that day. Uh, that's that's very unlikely. But you will find many other things that are very important for the history of the shroud that we have not yet uncovered. Um, and uh, so I was I was at some archives and just give you one example. For example, uh, I was in uh, Grenoble. Uh, the ar the archives of uh, this area, the Côte d'Or, um, and uh, uh, sorry, I said Côte d'Or. It's a Isère, the, the Department of Isère, and uh, and and there is it's actually a, an incredible place. Uh, they actually created a build a new building. It is very in impressive, very impressive building uh, for the archives of that area, of that department. And there you have a document that you have Geoffroy de Charny, you know, he, uh, from a notary, uh, is actually paying homage to, uh, Humbert II, the Dauphin, what we call the Dauphin, we call it also the old Dauphin. And so we know that Geoffroy de Charny, uh, went with, uh, uh, Humbert and the East to uh, actually, uh, you know, on a croisade, on a crusade. Um, but then we have documents that shows that, you know, he was paid by Hubert, Humbert and he was, he paid homage to, to him. And we have some dates there that gives us more information of when this could have happened and so on and so forth. This is, this is a completely new document that we have to actually transcribe and uh, better understand. It's partly written in French and written in, in Latin. Um, and other things that we found uh, about Marguerite de Charny, the granddaughter of Geoffroy, who we know very well was uh, Marguerite de Charny, uh, was uh, you know the, the person who, uh, we could use that word, sold the, the shroud to uh, the Duke of Savoie. Um, and uh, so that happened in 1453. Um, and, and we have more information now, you know, when we look at these documents that she received also a good sum amount of money uh, beside the castle that we know. Uh, and so these documents, you know, they, they provide us more information uh, and, and slowly with all these documents, with all these homage of each person, like if you go down to um, Geoffroy II also pay homage to several people and that shows you to whom he was actually answering, uh, to whom he was supposed to work for, uh, and the dates also that he did all of that. And then now we can figure out a little bit more, you know, when the shroud left Lyre, uh, where, you know, as everybody knows, is where the first exhibitions happened, and how long did it happen, uh, these exhibitions? So we can put some dates now more precisely and have a better history. Um, and, and so I think that we have a, still a lot of work to do in terms of searching the archives for things that, you know, most of the time the archives, they have indexed some of the documents they have, and sometimes they don't. 
And so you have to go there and you have to search uh, more deeply than what has been done so far, even by the curator of these archives. Yeah, and I always think when when you always when you talk about searching through the archives, I always think of a dusty, dingy place. But you're uh, based on what you're saying, that uh, where you were there was actually very modern and uh, and and very impressive uh, overall. Yeah, these these uh, I mean the French government I think is maintaining these archives with uh, you know good amount of money. Uh, we can see it at Angola, uh, for example, the new building that was created that was built uh, for the archives is very impressive uh, and now they have uh, more curators I think uh, going through the documents and indexing what they have uh, I was very surprised when I arrived at the archives of uh, Grenoble um, so there was a person there a professional ar archivist that uh, showed me that they had indexed all the homage that they had uh, so we cannot see that on the on the web if you go on their web page you have no idea that they have an index showing all the names of the people mm. that have been homage to different people. Uh, apparently, it's an exhaustive index. Um, that's very important. So we did find homage of some people uh, very easily using that, uh, that index. And so sometimes you really have to go there uh, and meet the archivist to understand what's going on and uh, what they have has resources to find documents. And so the web currently is it's not enough just to go on the web and search there, even on their website. Well, I'm very jealous. I wish I could have been there, but um, I, unfortunately I don't speak French. And just curious, are, the, are these documents written in uh, relatively modern French or is it uh, like an older French? And uh, did you have trouble reading them and, and, and deciphering them? So first of all, it's always complex to get to the documents themselves. Yeah. So when I was in Ghana, for example, the first thing they tell you, the document is too old, so too old. So we're going to have to bring the, the macrofilm that we did of it. And you can look at the macrofilm and take a photograph of it. So indeed, you can take photograph of personal research without any problem. But the macrofilm is problematic because uh, the contrast is lost. And so that makes reading the document. So the first reading document is very difficult. So the first issue actually is just to transcribe what you're reading. You don't even worry about the meaning of it. It's just transcribing. And so that's reading the letters. And uh, that's that might be difficult. Uh, that's the first problem is... When it is written, let's say in Latin or even French, uh, they use a lot of uh, what we would call acronyms or, or shorthand. And so you have to know those. Uh, that's a major difficulty in some documents. Um, one document that I actually uh, photographed was actually written in, in German and mm -hmm. not in French, neither Latin. So at first, when I look at it, I said, what am I reading here? And it took me a while to figure out, oh, I think, and I saw the name of Marguerite de Charny being spelled out, but the de was not a de, it was von. So <laughs> Marguerite von Charny. So I said, no, this is not French. Uh, this is not Latin. This is German. Uh, so you get a little bit of surprise there because I think this document was written near Montbar, which was the, in, in the years where uh, it was not part of France. So most documents were written in German, uh, I mean, military documents. Uh, but indeed, sometimes you have some French mixed with Latin and the homage for Geoffroy de Charny to Humbert II. 
it is partly French, partly Latin. And I'm not, I'm not, I cannot read manuscript written in Latin. This is, this is way too difficult for me. Uh, I don't know Latin enough for that. And so, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> I have a, a colleague, uh, his name is Karl Heinz Dietz. Uh, he's a German historian, uh, and uh, he's pretty good at reading these things. So that's that's his that's his job. Because when I contact him and I and I bring him these documents, uh, we work kind of together, and uh, so he he does the the job of, of translating and not translating, but at least understanding what the document mm. is saying. The French and D can be very hard to read. Uh, the words, some of the words are written in a completely different way than modern French. Uh, we're talking here uh, 14th century, 15th century. Um, when you go up to 17th century, yeah, I can read it without any problem. Uh, 18th century, of course, no problem. 17th, uh, no problem. But going down to, yeah, 14th century, it's, it, takes, uh, it takes a dictionary. You have to search the dictionary, finding the real meaning. And some words... Some people don't even know exactly what it means. Um, mm. So you have to kind of find a middle meaning of some words, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's uh, a little bit like trying to read uh, Old Hebrew and, in, in, you know, in the Old Testament and trying to decipher what the actual words were versus uh, uh, versus modern or, or more modern uh, Hebrew or Greek or whatever. Yeah, just fascinating. Well, if you need any help on the German, I'll... Uh, I'll okay. fire up my German <laughs> skills. <laughs> All right. But it sounds like you got that solved. <laughs> yeah, well, Karlheim Dies, uh, is his mother tongue is German, so it's mm. <laughs> absolutely no problem there. Uh, so yes, I guess I guess we can go through that one without yeah. too much. <laughs> All right. So now you have uh you've so your path is somehow the shroud got to uh, Jeffrey de Charny, and I'll use the English translation or the pronunciation. So Jeffrey de Charny the first, uh, as opposed to the second, and uh, and then it went to Marguerite. Now, how how do you get from the shroud being in Constantinople to getting to Jeffrey de Charny the first? Uh, yeah, well, Jeff. Yeah. So my, I think I think after reading many of the hypotheses out there that were proposed by different researchers and in reading the documents, uh, the original documents and trying to go back to the sources. Uh, my my uh, current, uh, I would say thesis or what I consider to be the most probable route uh, from uh, Constantinople or let's say the East to the West, I mean, France, uh, it goes, um, and I believe strongly in that direction, goes through the Saint-Chapelle of Paris. And um, the route here is actually pretty straight, I would say. <laughs> it's not convoluted. Although at first, for some people, it, it cannot be true for some reason. And I will go to explain a little bit why it can be true and how come some people came to the conclusion it cannot be. But um, one thing for sure, and I, and I think that it, that is proven, that is proven, you know, with 99% uh, chances there, is that the uh, reliquary of the Mandelian, what we call the Mandelian, that was uh, the image of Edessa, uh, the reliquary of that definitely arrived at the Saint-Chapelle in 12, let's say, 41. Some people say maybe 1242, you know. But it was Saint Louis when he bought, uh, we should use that word, but uh, from his cousin, Baudouin II, Baldwin II, uh, 
um, who was the uh, emperor of Constantinople and, and these years, who actually needed lots of money to protect the city from the attacks that uh, was occurring. And so um, these 22 relics that were taken from the palace of Constantinople, the imperial palace, were brought to Paris. And eventually the Saint-Chapelle was built in 1248. And they were all put in this huge grand chasse, uh, all these reliquaries with the relics. And of course, as everybody knows, the crown of thorns was the principal relics that Saint Louis was interested in. And he, you know, look, of course, he had, uh, in some cases, a new reliquary being created for it, and even from other uh, relics. Uh, but there are two exceptions, for sure, we know. Two reliquaries were, were not changed, and it is the reliquary of the Mandelian and the reliquary of the, the stone of, uh, uh, was found in the tomb of Christ. So these two reliquaries were left as is, and not, I would say, analyzed that deeply. And the theory goes is that, um, so the Mendelian, the reliquary of the Mendelian is very well described in the inventories of the Saint-Chapelle. And I think the main source of information we have about the Mendelian is not in the old documents that was, were in Constantinople. These documents are the inventories of the Saint-Chapelle because we have a clear description of what the reliquary was. And the reliquary of the Mandelian, for example, is described in a size that, that uh, uh, where the shroud can easily have been put in it in a very comfortable way. Uh, the size are given of the reliquary of the Mandelian and the, and the French document. I mean, this is incredible. We don't have that from the Constantinople documents. Um, and the size fits very well the shroud. Um, of course, the shroud was, was uh, uh, folded and put in the reliquary. And one thing that is very interesting is that the reliquary is described having a cover that was sliding open and out. You could, you could slide it. And we know that there was a painting of the face of Christ in, in the bottom. It is always described to be at the bottom of the reliquary. Now, the, the hypothesis, you, you would say, of the way the, the shroud would have been stored in there is that the shroud was folded and put underneath that piece of wood on which there was a painting in the face of Christ. That means that when you were sliding open the cover of that reliquary, you would see the face of Christ painted. You would not see the, the cloth directly. You would need to have somebody probably with a key to open the reliquary completely and then remove that painting that was on top on a piece of wood and look and see the, the shroud there. And one thing we have to know, uh, it's very important in the context here, is that these relics that were, I would say, second kind of relics were not really studied by the, the official of the Saint-Chapelle of Paris. There was a private uh, set of relics that were only allowed to be seen by the kings the king of France, and very rarely by anybody else. Uh, so that means that probably most of these relics were not looked at very carefully. And that's why it got unnoticed. And that's a bit incredible at first. That's the reason why people don't believe this theory is possible. But um, I think that when you look carefully at the context, you realize that very few people 
had access to these relics and very few people studied them. And as the story goes, I mean, the, for the thesis is that eventually what happened, probably what happened is that at some point, Philip VI or Jean de Le Bon, the, the, the son of Philip VI who became king, um, gave the shroud to Geoffroy de Charny because we know very well that Geoffroy de Charny was very close to Philip VI. And he was also actually closer even to his son, Jean de Le Bon. Um, and, and I published with uh, Carl Heinz uh, actually some hypothesis of when this could have happened, this exchange. There was probably a mistake being done. My, my theory now, my thesis is that this gift to Geoffroy Charny was probably a mistake, was probably an accident. Uh, the giver was unaware of exactly what he was giving to Geoffroy de Charny. Or probably another, you know, maybe a little bit more complex story is that Humberto was involved into this. And Humberto probably received that, that relic as a gift, but he died before he actually could use it because we know that Humberto died uh, in, in 1955, I'm sorry, in 1355. <laughs> and so just one year before uh, Geoffroy de Charny uh, passed away also in 1356 in September 19, September 1356. So probably also it, it became actually uh, uh, an accident that the, the shroud fell into the hands of the whole family of Charny. Um, and I think the pieces here are put together in a relatively simple way. Uh, um, and that, that is a thesis I think is the most probable. Yeah, very interesting. So, uh, so what you're saying is that in the Grand Chasse, there was a wooden uh, case, and that case then had a face of of Jesus painted on 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 either on the case or on in a on a on a regular painting, and then within that, you're saying is then potentially where the shroud was stored unknown to uh king philippe the sixth or then his uh and then his son and then that was given to uh jeffrey de charny and then somehow he uh discovered that there was something inside that case is that that sounds like uh, uh what you're saying yeah essentially that's it uh i wouldn't say that they were completely unaware of the cloth that was in the in the, in the reliquary uh i would say that they were aware because actually the document says cloth that is you know actually the right term is is, is in latin when it was given by baldwin the second the document says that uh it's a sanctam twelam it's a saint toile in french or so uh uh, uh so a holy cloth a holy mm. cloth that was uh, inside the reliquary so i think they were aware there was a cloth or the king was aware, or actually, you know, superficially aware. There's a cloth there. Mm. Like he received many relics, by the way. So we have to put ourselves in this context. We have 22 relics, and some other cloth also that was there, and all kind of stuff. And so they were aware as a cloth, but uh, yeah, it was kind kind of a hidden when the cloth was hidden to the eyes of the common mortals. Uh, you could not mm. slide open. You could slide open the the reliquary. I guess without a key, you know, uh, but the only thing you could see at that point was just the painted face on a piece of wood, like like uh, uh, like uh, any any painting uh, mm. that we have uh, painted on, on wood that was over the cloth. 
Um, and uh, but then uh, probably they never took the time to uh, unfold the cloth and look at it very carefully. Uh, that was probably something. As for us, it's, it seems a bit strange to say that we're not interested in it, but um, for, for them, I'm pretty sure, for example, the stone that was, the piece of stone that was in the reliquary, did they actually remove the stone for the reliquary, weighted it, measure it, and then try to figure out what kind of stone? No, I don't think so. <laughs> All the inventories we see, very old inventories, never mention what type of stone, never mention the size of the stone. It's always very superficial analysis. Um, mm. Same thing with many other uh, relics that we know uh, from the past were not analyzed carefully and sometimes very, very wrongly, you know. Uh, so there was this, this uh, sanctity of the relics that studying it very closely was probably frowned upon, you know. And so uh, unfolding the cloth was probably not the first thing the king wanted to do. Mm. Yeah. He had other relics he was interested in and um, and let's say that in general, uh, the existence of the Mendelian was uh, quite unknown in the West. Not that it was completely unknown. Some people knew, of course, the existence of such a, a, a legend, uh, because you know the legend that was in the East, the legend of Abgar, became the legend of the Veronica in the West. Mm. That's what it is. Um, so they knew about the Veronica uh, in Rome, you know. Uh, but that came later, let's put it that way, that yeah. came very well known a little bit a little bit later. I mean, the Veronica was known early in uh, uh, the late 12th century. Uh, so in 13th century, when it arrived, all the relics arrived, and the, the Veronica was known in the West. But it, it was obviously uh, a copy of the legend of Abgar. Yeah, 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 interesting. So that gets us to uh, 1241, then, uh, or maybe 42, when, when the when the shroud made its way from Constantinople to, uh, or somewhere in the east, Constantinople, or or up to up to uh, Paris. Um, now, you also mentioned there was something with uh, Venice and uh, the Venetians and how the funding worked, and some of the challenges that Baldwin had in terms of financing the security of the city and of the empire. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting story, but what it's felt is that, of course, uh, what's, what's happening here, uh, the Venetian got involved and for a reason that, you know, now is, is clearer to us. Um, so the relics could not be sold directly for, um, for money to, uh, to the St. Louis, uh, Louis the, the Ninth, uh, and, and 13th century. So that means that a way has to be found to hide the fact that money was transferred directly from St. Louis to buy the relics. And the idea here was to say, well, I need money. So Baldwin II said, I need money right away. And so he brings them to Venetia and the Venetian uh, loaned the money on this, you know, on, on the fact that they own uh, right now, they, they, uh, they have it in their own hands, some of the relics, including the, the crown of thorns. And, uh, and so now the, the story goes as, okay, now the problem is what happened if Baldwin II do not pay back the loans? 
well, these will probably be sold to other people and maybe to people we don't want it, them to own this thing. So that's why saying we jump in and say, I'm going to save the relics now. I'm going to save the relics. <laughs> so I will send the money to the Venetian, <laughs> not to Baldwin. <laughs> and so you have like a middle man here occurring. And so since St. Louis is saving the relics, our Christian relics, and they cannot go back, let's say, to anybody else uh, on the, I would say, you know, the other other uh, <laughs> uh, people in the, in the East, uh, then, then the Pope, of course, is, is for it. Uh, so they were saved. So the, the relics were saved <laughs> from what, what they would say back then, the infidels. And so, yep. <laughs> so at that, that was a way to essentially buy the relics from yeah. Baldwin. Like, so I was paying uh, protection services. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, indeed. That's so funny. And uh, I mean, I'd love to get into that more too. And maybe we'll do that on another call. But uh, so are you saying then uh, it, that it's possible that the shroud went from Constantinople and then was actually in possession of the Venetians? or the shroud stayed in Constantinople, but there was a, a loan taken out against it as, um, as collateral. And, but, and, but the shroud then may, went more or less directly from Constantinople for protection services paid for by, by the French, uh, the French king, and then it went directly to, uh, uh, up, to, up to Paris. Yeah, exactly the list. I would say that exactly the list of relics that were kept in, in Venetia and how long is not, I, I don't think is known very well. Mm. Some of them uh, would have been taken in Venetia and uh, brought uh, to Paris. Some others probably traveled from Constant Constantinople mm. okay. directly to Paris. Um, uh, I would say that the first one, there, was, there were actually three, supposedly three trips that were done by different people. Uh, and uh, the first batch, I would say, of, of relics uh, arrived in, in, in uh, 1239 in Paris, and that was the crown of thorns and the, uh, a big piece of the true cross and, and uh, uh, maybe another one. And, um, and so they arrived in three batches. So it, it lasted um, uh, it lasted three years. Uh, mm. And because uh, Baldwin II went a second time in Paris and asked for even a, a second amount of money, and that's where you have a third batch, a second batch, and a third batch of relics. Okay. Uh, and then maybe there it was a little bit more direct, you know. But uh, yeah, so um, but I think most of the money was transferred to uh, actually Venetia, not 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 uh, directly to mm. Baldwin. Mm. So uh, and what would have been the value of the money? that would have been paid? Do you have a feel for that? That would have been paid uh, from uh, from the uh, the French king over to the Venetians or has that uh, not been documented anywhere? Or? It, yeah, there are some numbers out there and I cannot even uh, remember right now on the top of my head what were the numbers, but it was a substantial amount of money. Mm. Um, we're talking, you know, it's in the hundreds of thousands of pounds of gold. Um, mm. and, um, so now I'm exaggerating maybe a little bit here the numbers um, and uh, and but in terms of I would say pound uh, tournois and um, so the the amount actually was so substantial uh, we have to count into that also that building the Saint Chapelle building the Saint Chapelle also was a major expense 
And according to some numbers I have read, uh, this has to be double checked, is that it could have been a third of the revenue of the kingdom of friends of one year mm. to have the relics and have the Saint-Chapelle being built. Uh, so it was a major expense yeah. uh, for the king. Uh, well, and uh, and if it is in the thousands or hundreds of thousands of pounds of gold, um, that's also not easy to trans to transport from France over to Venice. Uh, that's uh... a <laughs> yeah. Well, 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 it's it's. I would say it's the value of it, and probably not. Uh, it doesn't have that weight. But oh, it's, okay. It, so okay. when when we see three thousand pounds of gold. Uh, of course, it's not three thousand pounds that you have to lift. Mm. Uh, it's it's uh, equivalent. Uh, the okay. money, the money, of course, was uh, <laughs> a pound. Was... Well, a pound of you know a value of pound uh, tournois was not a pound of gold. Was much much less, much 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 less than. Okay. That. Okay. Yeah, that I was always wondering about how, because these some these sums are just enormous. You have, um, you know, even potentially there was a, you know tons of money spent on from uh, the emperor of constant in constantinople to edessa when um you know when the mandelian was uh, uh when the mandelian was uh being bought or maybe even the the shroud was being bought or unknown what was being bought when it was being bought from the uh, the muslims when they had taken it over and yeah. so they also said you know like as i recall it was like 200 thousand pounds of gold and so i was wondering how you could actually transport that much gold <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. uh yeah and, I, and i'm translating the word livre uh, in french uh, in those days you have uh le livre tournois or le livre de, de paris and livre uh is translated to pound um but um that that does not translate directly to yeah. the weight yeah, to actual weight. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, thank you for that. Now, um, so physically, I think you talked a little bit about the Templars being involved. How did they how did they potentially be involved in this whole uh, in this whole movement of the shroud from Constantinople over to Paris? Well, well I think it has I've not mentioned that so far, but it's probably a small mention to see here that, uh, yes, probably the Templars uh, I would say, let's say yes, but yeah, there's probably one Templar that was involved in one transfer. There were three transfers, uh, and probably one transfer, uh, one Templier, one Knight of the Templar, uh, was involved uh, for security purpose, I think, um, mm. and, uh, to go to some countries uh, from from uh, Venetia to, to Paris. Mm. Um, and um, but I don't think I don't think the Templar were much more involved in that. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the relics. Well, I could see that that um, uh, somebody has to protect it, and so it's not going to be a you know a small force. It's going to be a pretty large force. It would seem like to uh, protect it, unless it was disguised in some fashion as to what was actually being transported. Uh, actually, the group that were transporting the relics was probably pretty small. Uh, hmm. It's just that you needed, actually, most of the time you needed, uh, I would say, a pass. So you would need to contact the king of a certain country or an emperor and then say, uh, I'll have my men going through your country. Uh, do you do we have your protection? It's hmm. rather asking the protection of the land owner hmm. 
to be sure that we're not attacked by them and we're just going through as um as visitor, you know, as as passerby and 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 as 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 you know, uh, non non attacking uh, agent. And uh, so the groups was probably pretty small. We know that mm. one batch was uh, of relics were brought even by two brothers uh, essentially, and they probably mm. had very little protection, but just having a pass of going through some countries. And so they so, asked permission before. The, the, yeah. you know saying we would ask for it and and a venetian probably also yeah and do you think the country knew what was in being transported or they just knew that it was something of, of some kind of value <laughs> no idea <laughs> i don't know yeah. idea. permission was uh i don't think it was mentioned it's just yeah. uh yeah. asking permission to go through and you know and um yeah so um uh, it's difficult to know actually these things. I think uh, we don't yeah. have. Well, I guess it could have gone by. Um, it could have gone by ship, and you know, you could have left Venice by ship and then gone around the Italian peninsula and then back up to let's say Marseille or something like that to get into. Yeah, France. that's true. That's true. This mm. could have been done. Uh, I think in that case, it's probably much. You know, it could be longer, but also potentially more dangerous. We know that. Uh, it was common to have a storm and, mm. and perish in a storm in the boat mm. uh, or having major difficulties. And uh, also at the same time, I think you are at the mercy of any attackers yeah, uh, because yeah. you are uh, at large at sea and uh, it's not that, that secure indeed if you don't have a large group of yeah. uh, protectors. Uh, by land on a, on a friendly country, it's probably safer. Yeah, 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 interesting. Um, that whole part of it is uh, is definitely fascinating too. Is uh, and and technically, if it did go through a country, there may have actually been a letter or something written that may actually now be uh, findable uh, that says that hey, you know, we're going to have this group of Templars or group of something travel, you know, going through your country because they would have had to have asked for permission, and the permission would have you know, may have been, you know, asked for by the king or by somebody. And so there may actually be some kind of a document that that may may actually exist to to document that fact. That, that's true. Uh, I'm not aware right now. Uh, can't remember of such a document, but uh, that's that's possible. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess we need to search at the right place. Yeah. To, yeah. Yeah. To potentially find them, find these. Yeah, uh, exactly. Exactly. Documents. Although I'm sure there there may have been even a lot of other things going back and forth. I mean, it had to be both ways because you had to send you had to send the the goods and then you had to send the payments. So there would have been two yeah. sets of people going three times. So that would have been six uh, six permissions through a handful of countries to get yeah. from uh, Venice uh, through you know let's, let's say the Duchy of Savoy or the uh, or maybe Switzerland, I doubt of Switzerland because of the mountains, but definitely, you know, somehow going across till you got to France. Yeah. Yes. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fascinating. Um, we're definitely, uh, uh, pretty far along in time and I, I could ask you another hundred questions here. So, uh -huh. but I think, uh, before we break, uh, is there anything else you'd like to talk about or, uh, and, and we can certainly set up another time. I'd really love to talk to you about your your 2005 paper on the actual image and the uh, and the fact that the the cloth may not have been flat because I think there that's a whole nother topic as well. 
But uh, anything else on the history of the shroud you'd like to like to mention before we close? Yeah, maybe very quickly on on, on one of the hypotheses that has been put forward by uh, many researchers uh, in the last century and even even longer than that is the the theory that Auton de la Roche would have been involved. And um, I think it's Auton de la Roche would have you know owned the shroud in Athens and then would have somehow brought it back to. Um, France and then uh, Jean-Paul de Charny would have become uh, the owner. And I think that we can now, I mean, prove with high probability that this whole thing is not true. Um, and I think the confusion started a long time ago in Besançon and related to the Shroud of Besançon, where someone who we actually identified, uh, it was actually technically identified by Andrea Nicolotti, uh, it's uh, Joseph Duneau. Uh, Joseph Duneau wrote a dissertation that was never published and he claimed that the Shroud of Besançon was authentic and he gives a reason and all that and he put Autant de la Roche in the whole story. Unfortunately, this person uh, uh, manipulated documents and actually falsified the documents, essentially. Uh, so this Joseph Duneau who wrote this dissertation in 1714 left the dissertation at Besançon and some people started to read it and spread the idea that no, the story of the Shroud of Besançon, Jotan Roche, is actually not for Besançon, it's for the Shroud of Turin. But again, this, there there was pure speculation based on no documents at all. And this thing was repeated and repeated up to the point where some people claim, or I mean, somebody put a coffer and the Chateau uh, Ressourçon and claimed that the Shroud was in it. And then since that location is the location where Autant de Roche had a castle in the 13th century, people said, oh, hey, there's another proof here. But here we have a circular actually process where people claim something false and then some other people retake it and then reinvent other uh, potential sources of, of information, which actually the coffer itself has been shown very recently that it has nothing to do with the 13th century. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, Autant de la Roche, de la Roche, you know, was false and clearly false until 1980 or 81, until somebody supposedly found a letter from uh, Theodore Comnen, Comnen and uh, Ducas, Theodore Ducas. And uh, this, this letter was supposedly written by Theodore Dugastin sent to the Pope claiming that he wanted to have the, uh, that the Shroud was in Athens. And uh, the problem with that document is we have no trace of it before that. And it's mm -hmm. a copy of a document that we cannot analyze. It's a copy from the 19th century that uh, was written supposedly in 1205, but it's, it's actually uh, very uh, uh, improbable that someone from uh, that became an emperor eventually would go to Rome to claim such a thing, uh, one relic that was lost. Um, and on top of that, as you can see, when we go back in history, I would say the history of the history is that until 1980, that's for sure that the story was wrong about the Tondaroche. And then we have a document that shows up from somebody that actually disappeared even from from all researcher uh, and uh, it's Pasquale Rinaldi that showed up with it, this document. Um, and this document looks, you know, and very improbable. So, uh, and then that was the last, it's the last little piece of document that some people rely on to sustain the Autant de la Roche uh, thesis. 
But when you think about it, since it was false completely, this theory, then the person, and then it was repeated by a lot. And in 1980, lots of people believe in Otton Darach's thesis uh, because nobody had you know, clearly studied the documents uh, that show that it was false. Well, somebody created a fake. And that's very likely this is what happened there. Uh, same thing, the same similar thing happened at Ressourçon, uh, the Chateau de Ressourçon, the coffer mm. uh, definitely was never uh, you know, used for that purpose of bringing the shroud. Yeah, interesting. Well, it'll, uh, you know, it, what I found in the shroud world, it seems like, you know, there's a theory and, and then it ha gets its own, uh, and I like your point, the history of the history, it gets its own momentum and then there's an another theory that has, you know, so let's say your theory, uh, you know, where you have then pretty good documentation across the different time, uh, you know, the different time uh, throughout the history. And uh, it takes a long time for the one theory to kind of fade and then the other one to kind of take over. So uh, it, it, we, we're probably in transition right now. I mean, it's just like the radiocarbon dating. Uh, that was originally thought of as being, you know, uh, absolutely true, and and now forty years later, it's pretty certain that that uh, that there were a lot of flaws in how that was done, and and it may be another forty years or whatever before the Othon de la Roche theory goes away, and then now the uh, you know the Grand Chasse, and then the the Philip the Sixth theory, and the Geoffrey de Charny theory uh, uh, kind of supplants the Othon de la Roche theory. Yeah, that's true that some hypothesis takes a long time to, yeah. uh, even though the sometimes the documents are there and then we show them and all that, it's being repeated. Uh, it's a, it's the time it takes for information yeah. to diffuse and actually information to be discussed. And mm. so that's the important point. Uh, we need to discuss more openly all these things and, and provide critics and and actually, you know, come to a clear discussion in a, a mm. rational and uh, open discussion about all these hypotheses. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and if and I will admit, uh, you know, that the discussion process is difficult because you've got multiple cultures, you've got multiple languages, you've got you know multiple theories, and and it just takes a lot of time for things to work itself through the the system, and and then one theory to be more and more and more uh accepted as as what happened there so well fantastic um i let me break uh, right there if you don't mind uh this has been awesome and uh we didn't even talk about half the questions that i had <laughs> for you <laughs> so uh so we'll definitely have to continue this but um you mentioned uh as well uh, some places where you can where uh, our listeners can find information. One of them is syndonology.org, syndonology.org. You said there's a bunch of papers on researchgate.com and then academia.edu. And uh, hopefully um, on either on, the, on this theory of how the shroud got from Constantinople in roughly 1241-42 uh, over to France and over to Paris to the uh, Saint-Chapelle, and then at some point as well, we'll talk about the your 2005 paper because I have some some thoughts there. I mean, nothing that I can prove or anything like that, but I do have some thoughts as to you know how that how that image uh, and the 3D components of it uh, come together. And love to discuss that with with you as well. Well, that's great. I mean, uh, thank you to have invited me. And yes, we can discuss that paper and and answer your question and. 
And indeed, you're totally right when you said that it takes time for the information to diffuse and it takes time to, there's some sometimes language barrier uh, there. And, uh, you know, some people cannot read directly the French mm. documents. We have to translate all of that. And so it takes time. And uh, and and so what's, and I repeat here, is what's very important is to have an open, more yeah. open discussion, and which sometimes we are lacking in some of the mm. sharp conferences. Uh, we have to openly discuss and, uh, inter- and you know exchange ideas uh, more openly there. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And that, and it is difficult. But uh, with that, then uh, let me close. So uh, for the audience, uh, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. Uh, Mario, thank you so much. And uh, But otherwise, uh, for the audience, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. And if you like this one, please rate it with five stars. Mario, thank you so much. This was uh, really informative and uh, very helpful. Well, thank you very much, Guy. Uh, again, it was a pleasure to, to be here. Thank you.